is it weird that I was listening to you before talking to you because I was watching YouTube and I was watching one of your Let's Play videos? I'm just glad that I'm always on your mind, McLean. You occupy space in my head for some reason. No, it's just, I literally just opened up YouTube. I was watching YouTube while I was waiting and uh, just happened to be, oh, next thing to watch is the Eternal Darkness video. Sure, I'll start that while I wait for him. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of YouTube the past couple of days. I got really, really into flat earth videos. Oh, <laughs> those are adorable. I am mesmerized. Adorable is a good word for it. Because usually when you get into this, like, credulous science territory i get mad about stuff mm -hmm. i find that i don't get mad at the flat earth people i think we're kind of on the same page because like climate science deniers and anti-vaxxers like i just want to punch them in the d but something about flat earthers is just like oh, that's just adorably ignorant and you go through all this trouble trying to prove your weird theory because you personally can't see the earth curve from your back porch <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. It's like, maybe part of it is because, like, the flat earth theory is kind of harmless. Like, it's not hurting anybody. It doesn't really have the yeah. potential to hurt anybody, as long as none of them are pilots. <laughs> that would be horrifying if there were flat earth pilots out there. <laughs> that is a demographic I would want to meet. The flat earth pilot. I enjoy the ones that they think they're doing a science experiment. One guy put one of those big parking lot gates, right? And he mounted a camera at the front of the gate. And then he mounted one at the edge of it. And he's like, so when I open this gate, the farther camera should be moving faster. And he pulled the gate back and forth and compared the footage. And then he's like, there, flat earth confirmed. Wow. I'm like, you did it, buddy. That was it. That was the last piece of the puzzle for me. That reminds me of the people who used to do the experiment back in the day. And, and God bless them because they didn't know any better. But back before we proved that light has a speed, people would do a thing where they would have lanterns and they would try to time the time between turning it on and seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> and they would even do it across big distances like mountains. And they were like, it's instant. <laughs> Light has no speed, it's instant. There was one Flat Earth video that made me mad. But it was, okay, like, it was clear that Flat Earth was only part of the man's belief system. Right. But it was his behavior more than anything. Here's what he did. He went into Target, and he's wearing a creationist science t-shirt. And he's like, I'm going to show you guys the junk that the evolutionists are trying to teach children. He finds this adorable little, I guess, like, magic school bus book mm -hmm. about space exploration like here's what the solar systems is like and of course he doesn't believe in any of this <laughs> so he takes the book and one by one he tears the pages out and throws them well he for now he just throws them off screen and i'm thinking oh he's just in the middle of target destroying their property like, okay, he just that's... wants some dude in a red polo to be like uh sir you're gonna have to pay for that <laughs> well here's the part of the video where I, I, he kind of brought me back into the fold because when he was done, he revealed that he'd been tearing all these pages and placing them in a basket. And then he got the checkout line <laughs> so he could buy his torn up pages. 
So he was polite about it, at least. I will say that is the one thing about the whole flat earth thing is like on its own, it's harmless. It's kind of adorable. It's unfortunately does tend to come bundled with things. There tend to be a lot of like Christian science and a young earth theory and all that junk that goes along with it. So it's adorable to look at the videos in a vacuum, but there often is other stupidity going along with it. The most commonly agreed upon map for flat earth belief, and they can't agree on a map, obviously. There's several different factions within the flat earth community. But the most commonly agreed upon map is with the North Pole at the center, mm-hmm. and then Antarctica stretched all around the outside of the map. They say there's an ice wall there that's keeping the oceans in. So the oceans don't just, I guess not space, they don't believe in space, but the oceans don't slosh out into the ether or the the etheric medium or whatever they so call it. So how much Flat Earth stuff had you gone into before you created the world for the first Flumpf campaign? Because if I remember correctly... It was a disc world with an outer ice ring. <laughs> okay. No part of that sentence is true. Am I misremembering completely? <laughs> the people who lived there, i.e. you players, thought it was a disc world. But because you had the center ocean and the continents arranged around the outside of it, mm-hmm. and the further you went away from the ocean, the more uh, one area had an ice wall, one area had a wall of fire, and one area had a, just an impenetrable mountain range, a wall of stone. Right. But if you go back and watch the Baba Yaga videos from the first Flumpf campaign, I don't know what episode, somewhere in the Baba Yaga's hub, you guys will find essentially a globe of the world where you have a little livable space like in this bowl shape on one side of the globe and then this elemental hellscape spanning most of it and then another livable space on the other side. Really? And I described one as being the ocean and continents that you recognize, and when you spin it around, you don't recognize the other oh, side. Oh, see, that detail, I must have forgotten that in the, what, two years since we played that campaign? So, that's really fun. Uh, that I, I forgot that it was a case where just the citizens believed it was Discworld. For whatever reason, I've just thought, okay, it's fantasy, we're living on a Discworld today. And I now realize that there is a hole in my Flat Earth research to date. I need to find out what the Flat Earth community thinks of Terry Pratchett's Discord. <gasps> like, I, I need to know. Is it like their Bible? Are they fans? <laughs> <laughs> like, it, they, they can't think it's true because it's obviously abstract nonsense. It's obviously, like, contemporary fiction. <laughs> but Flat Earth's nonsense to begin with. I guess my question is, do they regard it fondly? Like, oh, like, this guy is making a fictional world in a flat earth because he knows that's that's what's up or does he like british limeys making fun of us over here <laughs> like which way is it maybe they think of it as like an allegory like it's a fictional version of what is really there once you've been red pilled to flat earth or whatever <laughs> i don't think they use the term red pill i'm sure they're a red pill flat earthers though there's got to be some crossover there no, because a pill is like a rounded shape. It has to be like a red tablet. That's the thing. They believe that spheres exist. There is actually a subset of flat earthers, I've learned, that believe that when you look up like Mars and stuff, there are spheres out there, but they still have a geocentric view of the universe where we live on a flat disk that is just surrounded by the sun and everything else that is spherical or whatever it appears to be. I can't even wrap my head around that level of arrogance. <laughs> 
I like the uh, flat earth debunking videos just because I like when you take things that are ridiculous, but then apply just a smidgen of actual science to it. Now, the debunking videos, I've enjoyed some of the ones I've come across, but there are some of these guys out there that are just a little too mean about it. <laughs> like, make a debunking video, that's fine. But I prefer the debunking videos where they're kind of matter-of-fact. They just stick to the evidence. They could be educational. Some of these guys, they'll make a debunking video by taking a Flat Earth video and then just cutting themselves, just, like, looking into the camera and shaking their heads. Well, I mean, that's kind of the lazy, like, way of debunking. That's not even debunking. That's just openly mocking. Yeah, exactly. You do a response video, and your response doesn't have actual meat to it. You know, it's just you going, really... That's exactly it. It's just yeah. It, it's fun to make fun of these people. That there's no question there because I mean, I'm enjoying we, making fun of them We've been doing that right for now. about 15 minutes now. So <laughs> I'm not going to make a YouTube video called Flat Earth Debunked. That's just you and me laughing at them. No, no, no. We'll just do a podcast about it instead. <laughs> Like I said, I like these sort of fictionalized science. Um, I think I may have mentioned it on the podcast before. There's a YouTube series I really like that's just called Because Science, where he breaks down the science behind pop culture things. Like, based on the way that we see a lightsaber interacting with metal, how hot would it have to be? And if you were to actually wield a lightsaber that was that hot, you would basically spontaneously combust. Like, in order for a lightsaber to be contained heat that can melt steel as it is shown in the movies, the person holding it would just die. Like, there's no way it wouldn't have enough radiant heat to just vaporize you immediately. The thing that always bugged me about lightsabers... I mean, let me backpedal that a little bit. <laughs> I'm not actually bothered by lightsabers. This is a work of fiction. Like, yeah. I'm not up nights. Like, oh, they wouldn't work. There's no noise in space. How dare you? Right, right, right. No. Is they turn on a lightsaber, and it's called a light saber. Right. It's a sword made out of light. It's essentially a laser. Right. How does it know when to end? How when you turn off your lightsaber does it not just dissipate off into space and Well, okay, first of all, one thing you should know is George Lucas is a terrible writer and I don't know. Well, okay. I don't know that I'd agree there. He's a very on the nose writer. He made effectively a laser sword, he called it a lightsaber. He had, you know, a guy who was going to be flying around a lot, so he called him Skywalker. There's a lot of examples of his his naming being very on the nose. But if you get into, like, the real, and trust me because I've watched these videos, it's supposed to be a plasma sword. It's supposed to be, it's fiction, so who cares? You know, you can space magic. Uh, but effectively, it uses some sort of crystal power source that can create a concentrated plasma that has both physical, because they hit each other, and, you know, they have a physical form, but it also is created like a laser beam. Does that make sense at all? Like, I know that's not technically how plasma works, but that's the fiction behind it is it's, it's actually a thing that is coming up, a big shaft of plasma. So let me explain what's happened here. I've, I've gone too far. George Lucas, who you've maintained is not a good writer, mm -hmm. wrote a story about a magic light sword mm -hmm. that he called literally a light sword. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't good enough for some people because some people said that doesn't make sense. By some people, I mean the actual novels and stuff that have been written in quote-unquote official in-universe. Yeah, me too. Those are the people I'm talking about. <laughs> Those are the people that went and saw Star Wars and was like, you know what? That movie was a ripping good time, but there's something about that light sword that doesn't make sense. It mm -hmm. must not be light. I have to go write a novel about how it's not technically a light sword. I Here's the thing. 
I don't know where canon and non-canon begins and ends with Star Wars. It's apparently a very contentious thing. For one thing, a lot of the stuff that's going on now with the Disney movies apparently is wiping out huge swaths of what used to be considered canon. Oh, this is not as nebulous a thing as you think, because it used to be, like, all of the books published in the extended universe were canon, Mm -hmm. and all the Star Wars fans were able to agree that these books were all canon, and then Disney bought Star Wars, like, nope, not no more. (laughs) The idea is the only things that are canon are the six movies that came out before Disney got a hold of it, and nothing else. And then everything that's been made since, yeah. I think the only thing that counts now, as far as the quote-unquote Disney canon, or whatever you would call it, is the movies, what's been actually put on film. Because they've added two movies so far, plus a couple of side movies. Believe it or not, I actually am not a Star Wars super fan. I've seen all the movies, but I'm not one of these Wikipedia-type guys. That's what their wiki is called, apparently, is Wikipedia, which I kind of... Is that of not like. adorable, though? That is. Does that not endear you to the Star Wars camp? It really does. So what I'm looking at right now is, so apparently lightsabers are supposedly powered by something called kyber crystals. I have no idea if any of this ever appears in the movies, or if this is just stuff that was in books that are of questionable canon now. You can't quote me on this. I'm gonna. Because (laughs) I'm not a Star Wars fan. I believe that the light, what did you call them, the Kyber crystals? Kyber crystals. Kyber, like like K-Y-B-E-R? That's exactly what it is. That is such a George Lucas word. Yes. (laughs) I don't think they're ever mentioned by name in the films, but I think they're heavily implied because in the, in the original trilogy, all the lightsabers were either red or green. Right. The good guys had green lightsabers. The bad guys had red lightsabers. Correct. And it's probably as far as they thought about the concept up to that point. Just like green for good guys, red for bad guys. We got this. Samuel L. Jackson gets cast as the Jedi Master Mace Windu and said, I want a purple lightsaber. Yep. Okay. Well, now that implies that lightsabers are kind of made to order by each individual Jedi. And that got expanded upon in the extended universe that part of your Jedi training is you go out and find this crystal or whatever and bring it back to the holy Jedi blacksmith monks who then forge your light plasma out of the crystal or however it works. So I think Mace Windu's crazy purple lightsaber implies that, yes, these crystals are part of the canon, And Mace Windu is the only man who ever went and got a purple one. Okay, I'm going to read you a paragraph now. Please, please do. In the middle of this wiki page. Kyber crystals were inherently attuned to the light side of the Force and resisted any effort by dark-sided practitioners to use them in lightsabers. To this end, a Sith or dark-sider could use a kyber crystal only by using the Force to dominate the crystal, bending it to their will. This process caused the crystal to quote-unquote bleed as if it were a living organism, resulting in the distinctive crimson-bladed lightsaber synonymous with the Sith. So, extrapolate that. Apparently, your force or whatever has an effect on your lightsaber, which is why you typically have one color for good guys and then the red color for bad guys, which tells me that Mace Windu is just so badass, he just made (laughs) his blade purple through the sheer force of Sam Jackson. So, okay, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn, they have green lightsabers because they're good, okay. And then Darth Maul and uh, Darth Vader, Vader, they have red ones because they're evil. And Mace Windu has a purple one because he's a sex machine to all the chicks. Is that what? Is that what? <laughs> You're damn right. 
I have to even question the canon value of that, though, because, I, again, I haven't seen the newest Star Wars movie. My wife has seen it 40 times, but <laughs> isn't it implied in the newest Star Wars movie that the light side and dark side dichotomy aren't even real? Like, there aren't really Jedi or Sith, like, these are just religions that kind of sprung up around the Force? There's definitely a blurring of it in the new ones. The idea is the reason that Luke has kind of a falling out with the Jedi Order. A lot of people bitch about the way Luke is portrayed. Did you even see the last movie? No, no. Well, okay. okay. I, I haven't seen it. But I have lived in a house where it has been played many times. Right, right, right. So Luke has a traumatic experience and goes off and basically becomes... It's it's a cycle story. He becomes Yoda, basically. Mm -hmm. He goes off and is, like, isolating himself and basically says the Jedi are gone. There are no more Jedi. Girl Jedi goes looking for training. And it's just recycling the Yoda story, which is good and bad. It's recycling Yoda. It's also recycling Obi-Wan. Yeah, it's, it's showing a cycle with these Jedi Masters, which... It's an interesting storyteller tactic. Some people say it's lazy. I think it's interesting to see this happen to Luke because he's the first one you saw from the beginning. You know, mm -hmm. you saw his rise and fall, kind of. But at any rate, he's kind of like, there's kind of an implication that there's not really a dark side and a light side. That the, his problem with the Jedi is everything was so black and white and they kind of let things go to hell because they were like good guys versus bad guys. I'm not explaining this super well, but yeah, you're, you're more or less right. Um, no, I think, you, I think you nailed it. I think what they did is they hired Mark Hamill to make an in-universe commentary on, the, origin, on the, uh, the, the prequel trilogy. Right. <laughs> and and you, you get some weird things, like I think Kylo Ren, who is the new bad guy, I think his lightsaber, even though it looks red, it's kind of orangey? Or is it just red? I can't remember now. Which one is, is Ren the bad guy? Is he the like the kid that doesn't shower? <laughs> oh no, his blade is freaking red. What am I thinking of? <laughs> I do recall seeing one of the original trailers where like the bad guy pulls out his lightsaber. And then he, like, hits a button or something, and he gets, like, a little lightsaber cross guard. Like, he's got a lightsaber claymore now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm like, oh, how wonderful. They, they're just admitting that they're stupid now. Well, here's the thing. Why haven't they had cross guards before? That makes total sense. If you look at the way, I mean, I guess they're originally styled on samurai swords. It's a seventh samurai kind of thing. But mm -hmm. if you look at the way lightsabers are designed, you think that they would be a pretty common move to hilt lock and then just go whoosh, straight down the hilt on somebody, you know? Okay, I hear you. Yeah, let's make cross guards for lightsabers. Let's do that. That sounds mm -hmm. like a good safety feature that lightsabers should have. Mm -hmm. Let's make the cross guards out of the same material that the handle is made of. Let's not make a cross guard out of the purple hot plasma that can melt spaceship walls. I don't know that the handle can block the lightsaber. The idea is the lightsaber will go through basically any metal in their universe. Then what's the handle made out of? There's got to be a Wikipedia page on this. Somebody's answered this question. You know what? I will do some hardcore lightsaber research. <laughs> Is that what the the white people in Avatar were trying to mine from that planet? They're like trying to find the one alloy they can make lightsabers with? Was Avatar a Star Wars prequel before the prequels? Let's see. Are Star Wars hilts made out of unobtainium? <laughs> McLean. Yes? We have to stop talking about Star Wars now. Are you just going to edit all of this out? We've just lost like 20 minutes of podcast. <laughs> we have to be done with Star Wars. We have to start yeah. over. Okay. Uh... Just play, play the intro music again. I'm going to send you something maybe as stupid, but it amused me. Here we go. <laughs> this $1,100 
Idris Elba doll. Looks nothing like Idris Elba, according to the internet. Scroll down and look at this doll. Okay. Now, the first question I have for you yes. is, who is Idris Elba? <laughs> oh, you poor, poor man. Idris Elba is Time's Sexiest Man of the Year. But more importantly, he was a very big star on the show The Wire. He was Stringer Bell. Okay. I mean, I'll tell you what. If I had to pick, you know, the world's sexiest man, Stringer Bell would be on the lists. Suffice it to say, this doesn't look like Idris Elba. For one thing, this is a bald black man. And as far as I know, Idris Elba has never gone completely shaved head. He's always had hair in everything I've ever seen him in. People have pointed out that this kind of looks like it's supposed to be a Montel Williams doll. (laughs) Montel Williams is the baldest man I've ever seen. I mean, he's pretty bald. There is a little probably unintentional racism at play here that I myself am guilty of because... If you take a black man with very short, cropped hair like this, Mm -hmm. when your hair gets below a certain threshold, I'm just like, you're just bald. If I were to meet somebody and their hair was as short as Idris Elba's is in this photograph here, Mm -hmm. I would walk away from that meeting and three days later I would remember him as being bald. But scroll down a little bit because if you look at older, wisey Idris Elba... He has way more hair than he does in the... Oh, um, man. He's got that salt and pepper, like, Morgan Freeman beard. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He's a good-looking man. Like, he is. He's a very good-looking man. He didn't look a goddamn thing like this doll. <laughs> that doll is an abomination. And what I want to know is, why in hell is it $1,100? Well, it's $1,100 for the same reason a tie-dye beanbag elephant was $1,100. Somebody's willing to pay for it. Somebody's willing to pay for it. You know who this doll looks like? Mm. I don't know the actor's name. I'm sure he has a name. Probably. For that one Old Spice commercial, the man your man could smell like. That guy has hair too, though. I'm afraid to tell you. See, and that's the thing. When I think about that video, I remember him as being bald. When your hair gets below a certain threshold. By that logic, I'm bald to you because my hair is cropped very short. Though, I don't know. God, have I seen you in person since I started cutting my hair this short? Or did I have still have like crazy spikety hair? I, I do recall some of the spikety hair. But there was also a considerable amount of balding. Well, I mean, that, it's that's like you just... hadn't committed one way or the other. Well, I have been buzzing my head for the last several years now, so I, you would look at me and say that man is bald. <laughs> yeah, most certainly. <laughs> Which is fine. I haven't had the guts yet to do the razor blade bald. I, I've been sticking to just the buzz cut uh, so far. I think I need to lose a little bit more hair before I'll commit to intentionally taking my hair all the way down. <laughs> you know what's stunning about this doll? Is because even if it wasn't supposed to represent like an actual person, like even if this was just supposed to be like a character they concocted, the face is very uncanny valley. Yeah. And he does look to be plasticky bald. Like this came <laughs> out of a mold bald. But look at the loving detail on his pants, on the folds and the denim and the texture of it. Like you can see like the pleats. Somebody put way more work into those pants than they ever did on this head. The outfit that this guy is wearing has to be based on an actual outfit somebody has worn. I just don't know if that was ever Idris Elba. You would think that that would be included in this story if there was any pictures of him dressed up like that, but I do not see it. I have to see now if they've made an Idris Elba Funko Pop. Ooh, that's a good question. Oh, you're going to be mad at me. Why? I don't see any Idris Elba Funko Pops, but the first thing that popped up, I'm like, oh, there's a Wesley Snipes one, and I clicked it. And apparently it's a character from the Dark Tower. That's Idris Elba in the Dark Tower. Oh, is it? So I I did get it. Okay, good. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the thing about Funko Pop is it's such broad figures. I mean, it's basically black guy with a goatee. Like, that's all you get out of that. All black Funko Pops look the same to us. All Funko Pop looks the same. That Matthew McConaughey right next to him, I could not tell you if that was Matthew McConaughey or Harry Potter or anybody else. Like, it, they all look the same. That would have improved the Harry Potter movies dramatically if Matthew McConaughey been, had been cast. All right, all right, all right, Voldemort. <laughs> I will say the Dark Tower movie, I think if you never read the books, you would enjoy the Dark Tower as like a, this is on Netflix, let's turn this on one afternoon kind of thing. Like it is kind of a Sunday afternoon popcorn flick. The problem is they put a lot of stuff in there for the people who read the books, but it's just going to piss them off. Does that bother you when you watch movies after you've read the book? Like you want more book material in there? It depends. It really depends on the book and the movie. Like I read, okay, so my my order of Harry Potter, this is the best point of reference I have. I watched the first three Harry Potter movies and then read all the books and then watched the rest of the movies. So I don't think I would have gotten through the first two Harry Potter books if I just sat down and read them one day. I didn't find the books that interesting. But the movies were good enough that I got invested and was like, okay, I'm going to get through this. Then kind of the opposite happened. Once I read the books and then watched the movies, I was like, these movies are good. And I don't dislike them for not including stuff in the book. I just feel like there's stuff that if you didn't read the books, you're going to be lost. I feel like the movies worked as a supplement to the books rather than being their own thing and standing on their own. I have the exact same feeling about the Harry Potter movies. It's one of the things I don't like about them. But I've learned over the years that my interpretation of these movies is not the common one. I saw the first movie as well. That was the first introduction to the series. And then I I read, not all of the books had been published at that point, but I read the ones that had been published. And then the second movie came out. I remember watching that second movie and thinking, if I hadn't just read this book... There's no way I'd be able to follow on screen. Right. But then you hadn't read any of the books, and you followed the second movie just fine. Yeah, I did, but I felt like I understood it better when I read the books. But also, the first three books aren't as complicated. The ones that I really, really sweat is, like, there's some details in, like, the fifth, sixth, and seventh books that, if you just saw the movies in a vacuum, I think you're going to be lost. Can I just... I don't know if Rowling's lawyers are listening, (laughs) but I'm going to go ahead and just spoil her dirty little secret. Those books are not complicated. They're just long. They're not complicated books at all. They're very, very simple stories. And I think that's why I get that sensation of how could you possibly follow these movies if you haven't read the book? It's because she puts in all these little details and strings them along in the books that are really easy to film in passing, like little details in the background or little details in the dialogue that don't augment the story at all. They're just like train spotter stuff. They're like, ah, oh, I recognize that. Yeah, I think I think the problem is, and you get this with a lot of things that are being kind of done concurrently. I think that what happened was is there were things that were maybe that were left out of the movies that became maybe more important later on, and then the movies had to kind of shoehorn the way back in there. Like one in particular, there's this mirror that is really significant in the last book. And Harry gets it in, like, the fifth book, I think. But the movie just admitted. They were like, we don't need this mirror. Why do we have this mirror? This is one of those unimportant background details. And then it becomes important later on. So the movie just had to kind of randomly have him have a mirror in the last movie. See, that seems like the kind of detail they should have not filmed that. When they got meant to make the last movie, they should have just been like, okay, we've established Harry doesn't have a mirror. 
So let's just not have a mirror. Why do we need a mirror? Without getting into the weeds, it would have been tricky to do that. But yeah, exactly. The fact that they just gave him a mirror randomly without explaining it, without having it. Even do like a little retcon flashback scene. Like, oh, this thing happened. We didn't show it to you at the time. No, definitely don't do that. No, no. Veto that idea. (laughs) Don't put a flashback in a movie that's already three hours long. Please. (laughs) I don't know. Well, like, okay. As somebody who's maybe read the books before you saw the movie, you're thinking, if you don't have the mirror, the story doesn't work. But, like, what's the worst thing that could happen if you take this mirror out of the story? If you take the mirror out of the story, you have to figure out a different way to make him do certain things. This is a magic mirror. He literally sees something in the mirror that spurs part of the action. Now, obviously, it's magic. He could do it with whatever. You could have him see some other mirror. You could see the mirror in a house. You could get a message by Owl. I don't know. I mean, if it was a Will Smith movie, there'd just be a new story playing in the background. <laughs> that gives him the relevant information that he needs for the I mean, scene. let's be honest. That happens a lot in Harry Potter. Anyhow, they get it through magic newspapers all the time. But this is what bugs me about book-to-movie adaptations. It's not, oh, they left that thing out, grr, I'm mad. It's... There's so much they should have left out. There's so many just details and subplots that just don't work in the film that they could have just smoothed all this over and made a wonderful 100-minute movie if they weren't bogged down with all this minutiae. I think my problem is, is like I said, because they were making the Harry Potter movies at the same time as she was finishing up the series, I think that there were things that the movies left in that they could have left out, and there were things that they left out that they probably should have put in. And I think that's the problem you have when you're working with a living work like that. You see the same thing with Scott Pilgrim. And and this isn't necessarily a problem because I think it actually worked out fine in this case. But Scott Pilgrim, the first, I think, three books were out. They started working on the movie. The movie was finished, like shot, before he put out the last book. (laughs) So he decided, and this is actually kind of neat, he decided to take the movie ending and decided to really mess with it in book form. So the book ending is pretty different from the movie ending. That's kind of the inverse of what's happened with Game of Thrones. George R. R. Martin gave HBO a plot outline. Like, this is how the story's gonna end. I'm gonna write the rest of these books, and then he didn't write the rest of the books. So HBO got to the point where they ran out of books, and all they have is just this vague plot summary <laughs> on how things are supposed to shake out. So they just kind of started writing their own material mm-hmm. using this vague outline as their North Star. <laughs> The uh, the series True Blood kind of did the same thing. I don't remember if the book series was complete or not when True Blood started up, but they made a very deliberate choice to deviate almost immediately from the books. So what you end up with is you hit a lot of the same kind of story beats, but you'll end up with like, this character may be alive and more important. Well, Walking Dead kind of does the same thing. Walking Dead does not follow the books exactly. It takes kind of the framework and makes tweaks for this works better maybe in television, this works better with this actor. Like, Daryl was invented, I think, just to be a side character on The Walking Dead, and he turned out to be so great that they were like, he's going to be a major part of it. And, like, I don't think he even existed in the comic books. Real talk? Yeah. Norman Reedus, he's another candidate for Sexiest Man Alive in my book. If I'm, if I'm making the lists... I need to see him more with a shower. <laughs> All that I've seen him in is... No, if he takes a shower, he washes off all the sexy. (laughs) 
I'm tempted now that Walking Dead is wrapping up to just mainline it on Netflix because my problem with Walking Dead was I hated watching it week to week. I don't find that enjoyable. It's not a very fun show, but I kind of want to see. I got spoiled on like the happenings right now, and it's just stupid. How much do you care about what's going on with Walking Dead right now? Oh, no, you can spoil Walking Dead. I stopped watching. Anyone who cares about Walking Dead, I hope, has watched it. If not, skip ahead five minutes. So (laughs) they had this whole thing where they're like, this could be Rick's final episode. And you think, oh, well, then Rick's going to die. That's just the way things work in this show. And in the show, he apparently makes some sort of seemingly heroic sacrifice where he's on a bridge and blows himself up. So there's like this scene where like this woman standing on the side of this rushing water and all these zombies just got blown to hell and they're rushing by. And I have no idea who this woman is because I haven't watched the show in like two seasons. And she sees like Rick's body on the side of the thing and runs over to him and like, he's apparently still breathing. And we're like, wait, what? And so she makes a call on a walkie-talkie. A helicopter shows up and just takes Rick away. And that's apparently how Rick exits the show. I'm sorry. Did you say a helicopter shows up? Yeah, I know. We've talked about the whole fuel issue. (laughs) I know. Trust me. I know. So anyways, apparently Rick is just gone. Never to be seen again. Which makes no sense. Because when you think about everything Rick went through, To get where he was, killing his best friend, you know, his whole thing with his wife, sacrificing to get to his child and all the crap he had gone through. There's no way you could take him somewhere in a helicopter and keep him there away from his daughter. Wow. I've been playing a lot of The Return of the Oberdin, and this is a game where you have to identify how people died. You have a list of all the people, who they are, and they're numbered, and then you have an empty box to fill in, like, what happened to them? What's their fate? I'm thinking of, like, the Walking Dead version of that manifest, where you just list all the characters and fill in their fate, and it's like, oh, eaten by zombies, 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 kidnapped by helicopter, eaten by zombies, (laughs) eaten by zombies. Well, except you'd have to amend it, because after, like, the third season, no one actually gets eaten by zombies anymore. People get, like, shot by the governor... Hit in the head by the baseball bat by uh, what's-his-nut. Abandoned in a field, probably to be eaten by zombies. Like, the whole man is really the monster thing really takes hold in The Walking Dead. And that's when I stopped watching it. I'm going to peel back my brain for a minute and let you just peek at the horrible inner workings. Because Mm -hmm. I didn't know that he got kidnapped by a helicopter. That's dumb. I did know that they were going to kill off his character. I had read somewhere that like he's leaving the show. And my first thought was... Oh, did he get caught sexually harassing somebody? Is that what happened? (laughs) no. That was my first immediate thought. Like, did Andrew Lincoln get caught? Is he the next one? No, not as far as I know. I haven't watched the new season of House of Cards yet. I intend to because I love that show. But that's what happened is Kevin Spacey got caught and he just killed off his character. And it doesn't have to be sexual in nature. If you're a racist, they'll kill off your character like they did to Roseanne. And they'll just keep filming more episodes of Roseanne, even though now she's dead in-universe. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> I haven't watched any of it yet, but I don't know if that works or not. I've read some reviews that said that it works, but like the idea of having The Walking Dead without it being Rick's story, because it was always Rick's story, mm-hmm. is kind of weird to me. And so I'm not really sure what the focal point is going to be after that. If there is a focal point, maybe does the show just limp along for another half season and then end, or...? You're implying it hasn't been limping for well, many no, seasons. Trust at me, this I mean, I, it's a little on the nose to use a zombie metaphor, but that show has been shuffling along, moaning for at least the past five seasons, as far as I'm concerned. McLean, 
we have to be done talking about The Walking Dead now. <laughs> you just gotta, you're just going to put a stamp on all of our <laughs> topics tonight. This is what happens when I don't come with material. I'm just going to rant about something until you stop me. I have one note, which is Pony Island. Oh, I have been dying to talk about Pony Island. It was not my intention to recommend that you play Pony Island. It was just, it came up in discussion and it happened to be a dollar. Yeah, I mean, for a buck fifty, I will try just about anything. Go ahead and describe to me your experience. So, put it this way. I do not regret playing Pony Island. I think it was a perfectly cromulent game. I thought it was fun. I thought it was exactly what you expect to get for two bucks on sale. It's three hours. It's an interesting game. My thing about Pony Island is, and you know, okay, full spoiler alert. If you hear at all about Pony Island, pause the podcast right now. Go pay a buck fifty or whatever it is on Steam at this moment. Play it. Come back in an hour or two. Okay. So Pony Island is, it's a metatextual game. It is a game within a game. You get your loading screen and you hit the start button and then it puts you at another loading screen where you can very clearly tell you a figure standing at like a console of some sort. And the style changes to like, what, Commodore 64 almost? And immediately you're hit with like an error. And so it takes you into this like hacking mini game where you have to go hack your way into the start menu. So then you play the first level, which is like a pony hopping over steeples like a really simple pony hopping over steeples and that's fine or whatever and basically long story short you keep hacking your way because the game keeps breaking until you have to like cheat your way and then satan yells at you (laughs) more or less he yells a lot yeah i think okay i think my experience with pony island is similar to your experience with undertale (laughs) in this way because i remember when you were playing undertale you were like I've played a ton of RPGs with morality systems and with alternative combat systems where you talk to people and stuff. You're like, I've kind of played this before. And that's kind of how I felt about Pony Island. I've played a ton of metatextual game within a game or the game is talking at you or there's a crazy demon within the game that's fighting against you. I feel like I've played a lot of those kind of games. Um, And Pony Island is fine it's good the problem i had with it is i didn't super enjoy the actual gamey parts of it no no you can't right i actually thought all the little textual stuff was cool i I like that kind of narrative i like the you're trapped within the game you know because there's some they, they do some cool stuff with it visually there's a part where like i think the game gets mad at you satan gets mad at you so he like hits you with knockout gas and like for a second you see like an entire arcade just fade away from you. Like you've been standing at an arcade console for a minute and it's like, oh, weird. But I did not enjoy it enough to care to find all the secrets because I was like, I don't feel like going through all this text and playing this very simple pony jumpy laser game to figure out where I missed a turn to find the next Satan riddle. So, I mean, the game sucks because there's actually two gameplay loops there's the one where you play the pony that jumps over fences and then there's the one with like the hacking mini game stuff and those are both terrible oh yeah <laughs> even as browser games like they couldn't hold your attention for longer than a minute or two no but you're right it does feel very much like oh i've played this before yeah. because everybody's doing this this meta textual narrative stuff but somehow the combination of all these three things together makes it just barely good enough to hold your interest for the duration of its runtime. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, it does some interesting things. I do like the visual style quite a bit. I think that of this style of game, it's one of the better looking ones for sure. I think that the way it uses the engine behind all that actually is done pretty well. The simplified pony jumping laser thing was 
just not hold my attention at all. And I think, like, if you were to sit down to the developer of the game and make that criticism, like, he'd hold up his finger, aha, but that was the point. It's oh, meant yeah. to feel like, and, like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> You're very clever. But when you purposely design a game to be boring to make a point, congratulations, you've designed a boring game. Well, and the hacking stuff, while it was not the most extreme thing in the world, the hacking bits were actually pretty interesting. They got a little tedious, but when you beat the game, you get like a chapter menu or whatever. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll go back and revisit some stuff, you know, just to see where. And I found like one, I found the part where you can talk to um, Baphomet or whatever the guy's name is called. And I was like, oh, I figured out his password. Okay, that was easy. But then I was like, I don't feel like going through this long map with like 18 of these pony jumpy stages again. (laughs) You mentioned the graphical style of Pony Island. And I think that's one of the most well-realized parts of the game. Because if you look at the graphics for the game, like just the design of the pony jumping fences, Mm -hmm. it looks like the kind of thing Satan would design thinking it's cute and will appeal to people. Because part of the game, you go in and you find, like, some of his earlier designs for Pony Island. And one of them's literally just Pony Island, but you play, like, a devil. And it's, like, clearly in version 1.0, the devil didn't go over well with the the focus testing groups. So he had to make the adorable pony, which, of course, looks freakish and horrifying because Satan designed it. One of my favorite things about the game, and I, I will give a major credit on this, is... When you very first start playing the game, the way that thing works is it's mouse controlled. So you just hold left mouse as your jump button. And you learn in a hurry that if you move the mouse, it moves the pony's head, which later on will be your laser. But very first when you start playing the game, I started moving the mouse around. And I was like, oh, that's cute. The pony looks up and down. So the first thing I tried to do is do like a 360. And the pony does this like horrific, (laughs) its head like inverts in on itself and i was like okay that's really freaking <laughs> you're absolutely right that's exactly the first thing i did too when i got that mouse and wow yeah so that was definitely i'm looking at more like this and a couple of these are free to play so i may have to go down the pony island rabbit hole um, but there's definitely a lot of um oof, i can't even begin to guess how many of these are just terrible most of these kind of meta textual games are terrible pony island's not terrible it's, it's playable, and it's charming enough, and that's really all it needs to be. But even before you get to the point where you're breaking the pony's neck with your mouse, the first screen you see says, like, okay, this is a mouse-based game. You might need your keyboard sometimes, but it'll be obvious when you do. Right. That's not the game trying to trick you. That's him telling you, this is how you control the game. This is your interface. Right. Too many games in this genre would use that to, like, try to trick you. Yeah, I could see that. I think I did at one point pick up my controller just to see if it worked. I think the controller actually works just fine as your mouse control. But, yeah, you're right. There would be, they would say, like, this is a mouse game. You know, you'll use your keyboard and it'll be obvious. And then, like, no, you're supposed to type stuff in at a certain time when, like, there's no indication of it or something. Exactly. Like, if you had to type in a word on, like, the RPG map section of the game. Like, aha, Satan lied to you on the first screen of the game. Yeah. You shouldn't listen to him. Like, come on. I believe that message pops up in the the main menu. It doesn't pop up within the game. So that actually works because that is the layer of the game that is, like, very specifically the game. That's exactly what sets Pony Island apart from other games in the genre is the developer knows where that line is and was smart not to blur it. Because it would be so easy to blur it, and people would think, oh, that's clever and smart. No, it's not. That's just the developer lying to you about how his game is played. That's all that was. 
That's not clever. Pony Island guy apparently has some other games. He like advertises it on the, uh, you know, the Pony Island things. Here's my other game. So I don't know if I'd want to try going down another path with him or not. As enjoyable as my time was with Pony Island, it was also very kind of forgettable. Like it's not going to stick with you. It's like you eat half a bag of Cheetos and you're kind of done. A uh, missed opportunity might have been because there's no Steam Workshop available for Pony Island. Mm-hmm. So you can't play Pony Island with the My Little Ponies McLean. As much as you would like to. Oh, that was all I wanted. I'm just now thinking about how horrifying that the game would somehow figure out a way to make that. Like, you would download a skin, and it would literally, like, drape on it loose skin or something. <laughs> McLean. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving, my friend. It is, what, the week before Thanksgiving, so it will have been Thanksgiving most likely when this comes out. If I play my cards right, I might actually be able to upload this episode on Thanksgiving, and everybody will have that to listen to after they've eaten. Well, hopefully Future Brick Road is full of turkey right now and having fun. How do you guys do Thanksgiving? Since uh, Do you guys go visit family, or do you just kind of do your own thing? So, as a young married couple, for years, the status quo was we have to have two Thanksgivings. Is that your deal? That is still my deal, because both sets of in-laws are... In town, for good and ill. So, yeah, we will most likely be doing two Thanksgivings. First of all, I'm sorry you have to go through that. Well, we don't do it on the same day. Oh. We did that once and it sucked. Do you do it on the same day? See, I I think that even sounds worse because I love Thanksgiving. It is my favorite holiday in the year. I really, really enjoy it. I would never go that far. (laughs) But... When it's over, like, I want it to be over. I don't want to have Thanksgiving and then next week have another Thanksgiving. That does not sound fun to me. So this year, like most years, I actually have to work on Thanksgiving Day. But I work second shift. So what that means is on Thanksgiving, I'm going to go to my brother and sister-in-law's house, which is thankfully now 10 minutes away as opposed to the 40 minutes away it used to be. So we're going to go over to their house and stuff ourselves. They usually do kind of like a lunch, you know, the the old Southern style dinner because I have to work in the evening. So I'll go over there and we'll eat and then I'll go to work and be half asleep. But it's usually a super easy shift because... Oh, yeah. No, I worked the Thanksgiving shift for many years. I know exactly what you mean. You kind of go in and pat your belly and lean back and just... The thing is, is if you're working on the Tuesday and Wednesday before Thanksgiving, like, you know, your job is to try to make the Thanksgiving shift people have an easy night. So most likely what I'll be doing is plugging in a couple of holes, things that couldn't have been done early. But for the most part, I'm hoping I'm just going in and babysitting. (laughs) But because of that, it's logistically impossible to do two Thanksgiving. So what I'll probably do is either the Wednesday before the Friday after we'll be going to my in-laws place for Thanksgiving part two. And I'm actually okay with that because they do different Thanksgivings. Like they both do turkeys different. They both have different sides. It's two very different experiences. Okay. (laughs) Well, my perception growing up, because we had cousins that were older than us. So by the time we were in high school, they were getting married and having kids and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And my perception growing up was that like a newly married couple has to have two Thanksgivings. Mm -hmm. You have like a primary Thanksgiving, and then you have to make an appearance at the other person's parents' houses for a secondary Thanksgiving. And if you can't decide who's the primary and who's the secondary, you have to come to a compromise and kind of like switch off from year to year. And this pattern would repeat until you have kids, and then you can just decide Thanksgiving is here now. Like, we're only taking our kids one place. Right. Or you can do it. I have a cousin who's just like, you know what? We have kids now. Thanksgiving is at our house. If you want to eat, this is where the food is. We're not driving all over creation with the kids. So 
part of me feels like you and your lady should be done with two Thanksgivings. Well... You have Junior now. You should be able to just say, this is where Junior's eating Thanksgiving. We almost always would have Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving with my family because my family is just larger. Yeah. It's easier to say, we're having Thanksgiving at one place because we have to get my parents, my brother and sister-in-law, we have to get all these people together. Whereas with my wife's family, they all essentially live under one roof still. So we just go over there and her mom is gracious enough to basically say, just tell us when we're having Thanksgiving. It's fine. We'll do it whenever. But that compromise basically means, though, she expects us to come over at some point for Thanksgiving. It has been as much as a week before or after before. (laughs) But she expects us. And, you know, God bless her. My wife's uh, mom does a lot for us. She's the younger grandmother. She comes over almost every week and spends the night and gives us a night, you know, where we get a little bit of a reprieve from childcare because <laughs> she wants to spend time with her only grandchild. My parents have, what, six grandkids now? Like, <laughs> So yours is not special. Yours is like just one face on the pile. Mine is like very much the middle grandchild. You don't want to be the middle grandchild. No, no. My brother and I, we were the youngest out of 12 or 13. I'd have to sit down and count them. But out of all the grandchildren, my brother and I were the youngest. So we were the favorites. Wow. My grandmother only had four grandkids, which is funny because she had four kids. And then somehow, just because of the way things shook out, only had four grandkids. (laughs) Basically, me and two of my cousins were born within a year. So we were all effectively the same age. And then we had one younger cousin. There wasn't a lot of competition there. You know, there wasn't a lot of spread. (laughs) And in fact, we all get called by each other's names, you know, by my grandmother and have forever. This isn't a senility thing. This is just... All of us are almost the same age and look similar enough that she just calls us all by the wrong name constantly. (laughs) And now that I have a child and I've called him by the dog's name and vice versa, I have a lot more sympathy for my grandmother. You've done that on purpose, though, right? Like, that's not just a mistake you make. I mean, it goes both ways. My dog will start doing something, and for whatever reason, I'm thinking about my child doing something similarly irritating, and I'll yell at my dog using my child's name. And I've done the same thing to my child using the dog's name. And some things will be just as simple. It's like I'm looking at my kid and then I hear the dog in the background and I'll say, just a second, you know, my child's name. <laughs> Our situation, we, we bought the house, Peanut's father kind of sarcastically was like, okay, well, now you have your own house. Which holiday are you taking? And then without hesitation or without thinking about it, she immediately says Thanksgiving. <laughs> So now everybody comes here, both of the families. That's the deal. If you want to eat, this is where the food's going to be. We're not driving all over the county anymore. We were given the option by the man himself to take Thanksgiving, and we took it. It's ours now. Right. My brother, I think, enjoys doing the turkey. He's got a nice smoker. He does a really good job with the turkey, and I'm just kind of willing to let him take it as long as he wants to take it. That's kind of my feeling. Michelle's mom definitely was saying something like, oh, you guys are going to host Thanksgiving this year. And I kind of was like, I'm probably going to be working, which I am. <laughs> she just had this expectation that you guys were hosting because you guys just moved into a new house a year or two ago, didn't you? Actually, just April. Not even a year Not even, yet. not quite a year yet. Okay. Yeah. Like we still have like half our stuff is still in boxes. Oh, you got to get on that. You have to. And you have to. I know, I know. We moved stuff out of our apartment into this house that we had never unpacked from the previous apartment, and it was shameful. 
we had a basement in our old house and that basement is effectively just our garage right now. And it's really frustrating because we have not parked in our garage since we moved here and it needs to be changed <laughs> desperately. I have a life hack for you. This is for anybody out there who lives in a house that has a basement or an attic or a garage that you use primarily for storage and nothing else. When you go to move out of that house, everything in that storage room, just burn it. You don't need any of that. <laughs> It's been in a box in your garage for seven years, and you've never opened that box. There's nothing in that box that is relevant to your existence. Just burn it down. You would be right about 90% of that stuff. The problem is the 10% that I do want to keep that I have to then sort through. Because there's absolutely so much stuff that I have no interest in ever looking at again, and I just need to get a dumpster and throw all of it away. But then there's going to be that one book, you know, or that one movie, or that one box that has photographs that I forgot was down there. And I gotta keep that stuff. You do not have a box of photographs. Oh, I have lots of boxes of photographs. What kind of millennial are you? Box of photographs. I'm not a millennial. I'm a Gen Hexer. Mm. <laughs> I'm officially the tail end of Gen X. I saw a chart earlier is today. That, is that what it comes with? If you're officially at the tail, you have to keep taking, like, Polaroids and put them in a photo album? I mean, I don't take film currently, but, I mean, I didn't have my... I got my first digital camera in 2005. Okay. Okay. I'm going to amend my life hack advice for you. Okay. Go get that photo album. Whatever's in there is apparently important. Transfer it to digital... Get it all scanned in somewhere, and then burn it! You don't need it. <laughs> I have, no lie, and a very sizable box that is just full of stuff me and my friend used to write. Copies of false start screenplays, comics he used to draw. I have archives of written material that I refuse to get rid of. I just absolutely refuse. It's all terrible. It's stuff I wrote in my teens and 20s, but I just, once a year or two, I'll pull it out and read some of it and giggle and put it back. What do we have to do to get a live reading of some of this material on the podcast? I mean, I already read a poem on one podcast. That's right. Make the that, cut? I do recall. That was really good. Yeah, that's probably one of the few things in there that I remember. Well, a lot of it's screenplay material, which does not translate too well to live reading. We could do a dramatic reading. You could find one that has two characters. <laughs> find some scenes. <laughs> yeah, for a hot minute, I thought I was going to be a screenwriter. That friend, though, to his credit, has made money as a screenwriter. He is a professional writer and has done some of it as a screenwriter. So uh, I take partial credit for that because at one point I was his co-writer. And I'm sure that feels very fair to you. Like, yeah, all right. Part of his mild success was all me, baby. Oh, I mean, it's not like he's, like, accepting Academy Awards or anything. I mean, God, I wish him as much success as, as possible. But Is that how you feel about me now, McLean, now that you're a big, big shot podcaster? Yeah, no, I helped Brick Road get to where he is. <laughs> I have not found a coattail I would not ride, so... Thanksgiving's not your favorite holiday. What is your favorite? What's the best? What's your favorite? I mean, it's got to be Christmas. Yeah. And it's not just getting stuff. It's just Christmas is always... My parents do Christmas big. And they always have... I remember, I think when me and my brother turned 18, my, my mom, my stepmom said something like, you guys are adults now. We're going to start toning back Christmas. And we're like, okay. Wait, you said okay? Well, I mean, whatever, you know, I don't control the pocketbook. I'm like, whatever you want to give me is fine. Uh, my family's the same way. We do Christmas real big. <laughs> I've met people who say we do Christmas big, and then they saw how my family does it, and they're like, okay, not like that, though. I mean, the last Christmas we went to, my sister's family wasn't even there. 
but there were three grandkids and then, you know, the two sets of kids and then all the stuff for them. I mean, there was a ton of people in this house and you couldn't get to the tree. (laughs) The pile of presents was absolutely ridiculous. And it's wonderful to see them, and it, you could tell it makes them happy to give all this stuff to the grandkids now, too. And yeah, it's my favorite holiday, easily, is Christmas. We had the same kind of moment, my brother and I, when we were all grown. I remember one year, my mother was like, hey, you guys are growing up now? We're going to scale back Christmas a little bit, and I think we're not going to do the big Christmas breakfast this year. We're like, yeah, we are. What, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> we're not scaling anything back. This is in the contract. We get this. <laughs> That's in the mom contract. So what we started doing was my sister-in-law was pregnant two years ago. She was due on the 26th or something crazy like that. And we were like, okay, if we do Christmas on Christmas, she's just going to have a baby on Christmas. Like, that's just going to be how it is. (laughs) So we decided as a family, we're like, we're going to celebrate Christmas. I think it was two weeks early with that side of the family. Then we went to my in-laws on Christmas Eve. So Christmas Day was just me, my wife, and my kid. And it was so lovely. It was the first time in I don't even know how long. Well, it was the first time ever, really, effectively, that I had such a small but just peaceful Christmas. And the next year, last year, we were talking and we were like, okay, what do we do for Christmas? And everyone agreed that early Christmas was the best. Let's just keep doing that. Your family... If, I've, if I have this straight, your family just does not have any respect for the calendar whatsoever. You guys can just celebrate whatever holiday, whenever you want, and nobody can tell you otherwise. I mean, it's really just about when you can get the family together. It has nothing to do with the calendar. For one thing, we're not Christian. Me and this side of the family, me and my parents, we're not like Christian. We're not really celebrating Christmas. We're just celebrating the winter day that we get together as a family. We are celebrating the Yule. Oh. <laughs> Hey, Solstice is here, all right. Yeah, seriously. I I am the exact opposite of that. Like I said, when Thanksgiving is over, it's my favorite day of the year. But when it's over, I'm done with it. Like, I don't want it again (laughs) until... I remember one year, my brother's wife was on tour during Christmas. She wasn't able to be there for Christmas. So we just decided, okay, like, first week of January when she gets back, we'll have, like, a second Christmas. Where we'll do all... We'll just do the gifts, some gift exchange stuff. And we all tried so hard. Everybody came together and did the second Christmas, and we had a nice dinner, and we had some gifts to give out. But it it wasn't Christmas, and it it could never be. Yeah, I don't know. We don't care. (laughs) (laughs) You'll have to remind me at Christmas time to take a photo of our obscene Christmas that we do. I have to see if I can do this while I'm talking, if I can find one from last year from what we did. No, you have to go down to the basement and get it out of your giant box. No, come on. I have digital photos now. I have a gajillion digital photos. Oh, my God. My digital photos are just insane right now. And mostly unorganized is the problem. Mm. You know what I did last week, McLean? Did you organize your digital photos? (laughs) I did. Here's how I organized them, okay? I plugged my phone in Mm -hmm. and used my computer to navigate to the directory where all the photos were. And I highlighted them, and I just hit delete, and they all went away. And now they are perfectly organized. You don't keep your old photos? I don't have... I have zero photos. I don't have any photos at all. Ever. You don't have a child, for one thing. If I did, I would have zero pictures of that kid. On your phone or just in general? In general. I don't take photos of anything. Wow. We have pictures hanging up in our house that my wife put there from our wedding and our various family members. But no, I know what my people look like and I don't need to carry... (laughs) 
pictures of them around with me. You say that, but I bet you, if you guys have kids, Peanut is going to be like, now we have to have albums. My wife found through these websites and stuff, you can get these like photo books made. So what she does is every year, throughout the year, she puts photos in a folder. And then at the end of the year, she goes through and she calls them down, I don't know, 100 or something. And then she goes online and she orders a photo book and gets them printed out and bound. And then that is the photo book. It sounds like she's very disciplined. Mm-hmm. But that's a dangerous game to be playing, my friend. Why is that? Because let me explain how Christmas got ruined in my family. When my brother and I were very young, we had Christmas with our aunts and uncles and our cousins, and it was fun. And we opened presents, and we played games, and we sang songs, and we listened to the Beatles, and we ate Italian food. And that was Christmas. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a decade or so, my brother and I are in high school now. The cousins, all now some of them have children of the age we were back when Christmas was fun. And these children, McLean, were not able to enjoy Christmas. Because every two seconds, somebody in the room with a digital camera, look over here, take a picture... Every two seconds. And so by the end of Christmas, there would be nine trillion photos of these children, and they didn't get to enjoy Christmas. They didn't get to enjoy their Italian food. And now they have an entire stack of hundreds and hundreds of photos that nobody ever looks at, and Christmas was ruined forever, and Santa Claus is dead. Well, I mean, Santa Claus is a lie. Let's, <laughs> let's just be honest. He's not. He's Canadian. He's actually officially Canadian. Really? Wait, huh? What? Is this the thing that I missed? On the book, Santa Claus is a Canadian citizen. I thought he was German. I thought he was... No, no, the nation of Canada has decided, because geographically they are closest to the North Pole, <laughs> that Santa Claus has a Canadian address. I mean, he is very nice. I'm sure this has been a point of some contention. I'm sure other countries would like to claim them, but I think Canada has a solid claim. One of our European uh, listeners posted a comment about, he thought it was cute how I uh, spoke of Denmark being like the Arctic tundra or something, when it's actually one of the more southern of the Scandinavian countries, apparently. I don't know geography. <laughs> I was like, it's all too cold. I don't care. I'm a Georgia boy. <laughs> Do you understand that, like, okay. I talk about Canada as if it's the Arctic wasteland? Look, I know that they have summers in Canada. I don't care. Saying that Denmark is the most temperate of the Scandinavian countries is kind of like saying that Kelber crystals is the most reasonable explanation for lightsabers. <laughs> there is no reasonable explanation for lifesavers. And there is no temperate Scandinavian country. They are all Arctic wastelands. We're in agreement about this. We're the ones with the microphone. So we have the power. You can't stop us. <laughs> every year for Christmas, my mother has this ritual that she does for everybody in the family. And we have a huge family. We're talking 40, 50 people easily. She makes everybody a yearly family calendar. God. Where she collects pictures. Like she spends the whole year just on Facebook. Like everybody send me pictures. So at the end of the year, she has the big, it used to be she got them in the mail. She had them in a big box and would go through them. And mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, she gets them all digitally. But it's her yearly project. And she's always fretting about it towards the end of the year. She's like, oh, I got to get the calendar done. I got to get the calendar done. And uh, it's funny because some years she'll call me up last minute and be like, I'm doing the calendar. I have no pictures of you. <laughs> Nobody took a single picture of you through the entire year. What do I do? It doesn't matter. It's fine. I'm a fan of it, the opera. It's okay. Nobody needs a picture of me.